0: and produced by the Deggie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Nine months into this pandemic, the topic of connection is everywhere. With the late fall and winter holiday season starting here in North America, the question of how to connect is even more prominent. For those in grief, this grappling with connection is nothing new. Grief can be a super isolating experience, even in pre-pandemic times when your house might have been crowded with friends and family trying to help, it's easy to feel completely alone. No one can truly know what it's like for you, because your grief is all about you, about the unique relationship you had with your person, about where you are in your life, about all the ways you were taught and shown, what you're supposed to think, feel, and do when you're grieving. In the isolation of grief, though, there are still times, places, and people we do connect with. Sometimes it's someone we're close to. Other times it's a complete stranger, someone we never would have met before grief entered our world. Margot Foulkes is a skilled connector. When her son Jimmy was diagnosed with a brain tumor at the age of 13, Margot made sure he was connected and supported throughout his treatment. When his brain cancer returned, she connected him with the specialists and the care that he needed. She also worked to make sure he stayed connected to himself, watching as he found his own voice over the eight years that he dealt with the disease. Jimmy died in 2014 at the age of 21. A year later, Margot's mother died of an illness. Facing these two devastating losses, Margot went searching for her own connections, people who could understand what she was going through. When she didn't find what she was looking for, she decided to create it herself. This is how her website Saltwater came to be. It is a collection of writings by Margot and others articulating the nuances of grief. Through this work, Margot has found connection, but has also created it for others, helping those in grief feel a little less alone. Margot and I talk about her son Jimmy and what she learned from him about how to be a parent, we also talk about how she answers the question, how many children do you have? And about how she and her husband learned to share space in grief, even though they grieve very differently. Little side note, listeners, when Margot and I uh, originally connected about doing this episode in the course of our conversation, we quickly discovered that her son, Jimmy, and I share a hatred of bananas. So again, Margot making connections. That's what she does so well. Margo, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Oh, thank you
1: so much, Jan. I'm honored to be here and looking forward to our conversation, too.
0: I know you and I talked before we decided to do this interview, and, and you, t- you told me quite a bit about your family and about your son, but I'm wondering if you can just talk with us a little bit about your son, Jimmy, and and what was it like being his mother? Jimmy was just an amazing kid. When I think of him as a little
1: boy, what I remember most is how easygoing and how happy he was. I came in one afternoon to get him out of the crib. He was probably a year and a half old, and he was jumping up and down, holding on to the side of the crib. And when I walked in the door, he looked at me and he said, I happy boy, mama. I happy boy. And that was Jimmy. When he, You know, he, he always had that, that element of joy in him, even despite everything that he went through, um, he used to refer to himself in the family as he was the type B in a type A family. <laughs> and I think that as he got into his teen, teen years and adult years, I think that really described him well. He just had a quality of mellowness that neither his sister or his parents ever had <laughs> or have. <laughs> And we miss that center because there are times when you need that person
0: to just like calm everyone else down. It sounds like he played a very vital role in bringing some balance to your family unit as well in terms of like energy and maybe just general countenance in the world. He did. He did. The
1: other thing I think of when I think of him too was that for this mellow, somewhat quiet kid, he, he found his voice because of his brain cancer diagnosis. When he was in the ICU recovering from his initial brain surgery to remove the tumor, my husband signed him up for the 40-mile Strong Challenge in Portland six months after his surgery. And I, both Jimmy and I thought my husband was crazy for doing this but dan wanted to give him a fitness goal and and jimmy got excited about the opportunity if he raised enough money to meet lance armstrong and so he got he got excited about it but what was interesting is what really drew him in were the was the opportunity to meet all these different cancer survivors and to be around people that were going through something similar to what he went through And it inspired him to start speaking out about his disease, about needing support, needing treatment, about advocating for cancer survivors. He really taught all of us the importance of just quietly raising your voice for what you believed in and taking a stand.
0: Margo, as you're talking about Jimmy finding his voice through his experience of of having brain cancer, it just reminded me of... You know, today is October 26, 2020. That's the day that we're recording. And today is actually the one-year anniversary of my friend Aiden's death. And Aiden died of brain cancer as well. And a big part of her process – well, my sense of Aiden is Aiden always had a pretty good handle on her voice and speaking up for what she – Needed, but through this process, she really became an advocate for herself and for other young adults who were dealing with cancer and what they needed and what she needed. And she would end every email to us with an update of her scans and what was happening with the with the brain cancer, with a list of what was helpful and what wasn't helpful in this moment for her. And I always think, gosh, it was such. A gift to all of us who wanted to know how to support her that she found her voice in that way. And it sounds like Jimmy had a, a similar process as well.
1: He did. He did. And the other thing that makes me think of too, is that he really, he found his voice too in advocating quietly for who he wanted to spend time with and who he didn't. And he had this lovely way of he was never cruel or unkind, but he, he focused his attention on the people that he loved most. And those were the people that he surrounded himself with. And when he was dying, he made a list of all the people he wanted to see from really all over the country and in one case, all over the world. And when he handed it to me, I worried that literally none of these people would be able to come and, in, and see him. And instead, every single one of them came to see him. And it just struck me as his mother watching these folks come into the house over two or three weeks is that, boy, when, when you make the people you love most a priority and you choose well who you surround yourself with, they will show up for you. And I've never forgotten that lesson. It's It matters who you surround yourself with. And that sometimes it's hard because you do have to gently... You know, not spend time with someone who wants to spend time with you, but that it's so worth it.
0: In what way were you, and this is kind of a strange question, but I'm just wondering, like, you know, you mentioned that Jimmy was a, a type B personality in a type A family. Imagine that maybe you brought your type A-ness to your mothering and wondering how, <laughs> how, how did Jimmy challenge you in your role as his mother?
1: That kid was so stubborn. <laughs> For this sweet, mellow kid, he would just dig in his heels. Um, So I remember when he was in junior high, and this was actually before his diagnosis, he was really slow to do his homework, tried not to do his homework, would do his homework, stuff it in the backpack and not turn it in. And we got into this battle one night over an essay that he had to write. And I said, Jimmy, you've got to write this thing and I'm not gonna read it and you know give you any feedback until you give me a decent draft. And so we would go back and forth. I would send him upstairs, he'd come back. It would be basically the same draft or the sentence or two changed. <laughs> and then finally at 1030, he came downstairs and he handed me a beautiful essay. And I said, Jimmy, How did you get from this to that? And he said, I wanted to go to bed. And I realized the little stinker had it in him the whole time to write a really good first draft. He just didn't want to. And he was going to see if he could outweigh me. And that was my kid. Like he would dig in on something and there was no moving him until he was ready to be moved on
0: something. Do you share his stubbornness?
1: i can at
0: times. <laughs> yes. It seems like sometimes the biggest challenge are, are the pieces of ourselves that get reflected back to us in our in our relationships. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, Jimmy was diagnosed when he was 13 and he died when he was 21 and as a as a parent, that's a major time of transition as your as your role as a parent from a young teenager to a, an early young adult and I'm curious, how did your role or your mothering change with Jimmy, not only in terms of his developmental progress, but also with the course of his illness?
1: So the way that Jimmy's illness progressed was that he was diagnosed, as you said, at 13, with a single brain tumor in the back of his head. That tumor was removed with an emergency craniotomy, and then he went through a year of treatment, And because of the way he presented both the doctor and we thought that after he finished treatment that he would go on to live a long full life and be cured basically. And to our shock and horror, a year after he finished treatment, he recurred. The cancer came back. And so then we entered this very scary place of not a lot of treatment options and not a lot of data about those treatment options. So, in the first two years, there was a single choice really about treatment options, a best option for that. And so, in that time, it, my role was really, I felt more about kind of keeping him safe, not making sure he was never alone at the hospital. My husband and I would tag team, you know, being up there with him, checking the chemo bag you know, watching for fevers, just doing anything we needed to do to protect his health. And then we thought we would be done basically with the whole cancer journey. When he recurred, my role shifted more to be the researcher. For example, I'm the one who did all the medical research about clinical trials, um, supportive therapies. I reached out to oncologists all over the country. And I felt like it shifted more into fighting for him, both fighting to try to save his life, you know, working with the doctors, but also making sure that nothing and no one stood in his way. As surprising as it was even to us, there were, there were teachers, there were professors, okay, there were a couple of doctors who were not helpful to him. And, and in fact, in some ways, you know, really got in his way or even could have caused him some harm. I became like the proverbial mama bear where I just would not allow that to happen. You know, I'd encourage him to deal with the situation if he could, but if he got into a situation he couldn't handle, then, you know, I felt like it was my role to protect him and, and keep that from preventing him from living as fully as he could. So that was, I would say that was really the biggest shift in terms of the cancer in terms of parenting him. They, the best way I can explain that is by telling you a quick story about the first um, Live Strong event we went to in Austin. So the four of us went: my husband, my daughter, Jimmy, and I. The, one of the keynote speakers that night was a man who had raised a couple hundred thousand dollars in honor of a dear friend of his who had a pretty advanced case of of brain cancer. And this friend of his that he had raised the money in honor of, John, was there that night and he was able to go up on stage and give a short talk. And one of the things he said was that he was fighting to live through Christmas and still be alive for the birth of his third child. And it was incredibly powerful and moving to hear this. Jimmy leaned over to my husband and said, after the dinner's over, I want to meet him. So the dinner ended, the two of them made their way to the front of the room. And as Dan got close to John, he could feel this little tugging on his arm. And he turned around and Jimmy said, Dad, I got this. And he pulled Dan back and he went in front and he walked up at 13 and introduced himself to John and had a conversation. That's really how Jimmy came into himself during those eight years is that he he led and we we took our we took our marching orders from him in many ways about where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do and it was really incredible to watch that come out in
0: him. I'm thinking about the balance between you know that role that you played of medical advocate and protector and yet also mom to a boy who's becoming a young man who's stepping into himself and trying to balance space for him to do that while also, you know, being a mom who cares about her kid and wanting to keep him as safe and protected as possible. And, and you mentioned um, your daughter, Molly, Jimmy's younger sister, and she was 17 when Jimmy died. I'm curious what, what was your sense of what she needed you know both throughout the course of his illness and after he died you know that's
1: a hard question in one way Jana, because the i think as a as a grieving parent we are so ill equipped to support our surviving children and we we were in portland when jimmy was diagnosed and for the first years of his treatment but we moved to california when he started college And down where we live in Sacramento, there is no, there is no Dougie Center to provide support. So I don't know that Molly got the support that she needed. I think she had to, in a way, she had to create it on her own. When she was, when she was really little, when she was nine, when he was diagnosed, she knew that he had this, this brain tumor. She knew he didn't feel very well some days, but we really tried to insulate her from what was happening again, because we had this idea that he would be done, it would be over, you know, she should just play with her friends and go on with life and not worry about side effects and the kinds of things we were worrying about. But when he recurred, we realized that she needed to be part of the team, that she needed to be more actively involved at an age in an age appropriate way with what was happening for him. And I think that LiveStrong, Jimmy's involvement with LiveStrong, um, our family's involvement with the Children's Cancer Association, was hugely helpful because there were grown-ups reaching out directly to Molly and connecting with her that could provide support that Dan and I didn't always have the bandwidth to provide. She became, in the way that Jimmy came into his own, she really came into her own too. So, for example, after Jimmy died, she wanted me to find a sibling who was grieving to connect her with so she could get some idea and perspective on what she was dealing with. And I wasn't successful in doing that. And sometime later, I made I brought it up and she said, oh, it's OK, mom. She said, I connected with our friend Bart from Livestrong, who's in his 40s, but had lost his brother. And she said, we've been texting with each other. <laughs> Which I thought was both just admirable and, and very Molly-like. And so, you know, I don't know that I was that helpful to her. I tried. I really, really tried. But she really took ownership in a way of her own, her own healing.
0: From what you're describing, it sounds like you raised two very independent, free-thinking, problem-solving, self-starting kids. Yeah. Well, some of it I think is dumb luck in a way.
1: (laughs) I mean, and some of it honestly was the cancer because you can't parent in the same way. And, and I've got a definitely more than a little bit of the helicopter parent in me, but that's, it's harder to do that when you have a health
0: crisis in the family. One of the questions that seems so complicated and heartbreaking and painful for parents when they've had a child die is the, you know, the average every day, how many kids do you have? And wondering, like, how do you respond to that question? And, and what is it like for you? When people ask you and, and maybe how has that changed over the last six years?
1: So it's definitely changed. Um, in the early days, if somebody asked, I really struggled with answering it honestly because I knew that I was gonna have to manage whatever the reaction was to the question. And I didn't have the capacity oftentimes to do that. But I also had the experience early on of driving to the airport with my husband and the Uber driver in the way that they do when you're chit-chatting asked us how many kids we have. I started to answer and my husband said one, and so I sat with that for a little while, and I completely understood why he said it. That was kind of what was coming out of me, too. And I asked him about it when we got to the airport, and he said, I just, I didn't want to explain and get into it. It was too painful, and, which was where I was at the time, too. But I also realized it didn't feel right to me. And so for the long term, I thought, you've got to find the words around this and the ability to handle the answer. And that's, that's really been the shift, is realizing that now I'm okay with however someone reacts. And it's funny, you would think that the more emotional the reaction is harder to manage. Actually, the harder reaction is when people just sort of say, oh, oh, and don't acknowledge what you have just said and change the subject mm. because it's so unintentionally dismissive of the death of my child. And I've had to learn to just let that go. But it's it's just, it, it doesn't have anything to do with Jimmy and his value. It's just the other person's uncomfortable and they don't know what to say. And so it feels safer or kinder to not say anything in that moment.
0: And with your husband, I mean, that seems like such a clear example of two people who have had the same person in their life die and, and navigating grief differently and what has that been like for the two of you over these last six years of how you've grieved similarly or differently or tried to grieve together or separately?
1: We definitely grieve in different ways, which is not surprising, I think. But the gift was that when, when Jimmy died, Dan had taken a leave of absence from his company to be home. We were here together while Molly was in high school during the day we spent days and days and days crying talking about whatever came came up going for really long walks with the dog and and just sitting with our pain together and so even though we do have different ways of grieving it it really brought us together to be physically in the same place and talk about it as as we both wanted to in those early days um, I think for for both of us, it's certainly about talking about Jimmy with our closest friends and spending time together as a family. But for me, I found that writing was really helpful. And I also found that talking to other people who'd had a significant loss was helpful, even if I didn't know them well or at all. And for Dan, that's not that doesn't really help him. So there, that's a that's a big difference between us. But what's nice is that I can do that and he cannot do that. And it doesn't. Cause conflict, if you will.
0: Yeah. And there's something about that container that you created, at least early on, where your different grief could coexist and interact with one another. And and it sounds like the the way maybe you engage with your grief with others is really different in terms of like you mentioned writing and talking with other people and that for Dan, that doesn't serve the same purpose. And And your writing, I mean, you are a prolific writer, and we're going to talk about your website where so much of your writing exists. And, you know, as I was going through your website, one of the headlines that really caught me from a piece that you wrote was that guilt is really the thief of joy and grief. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that idea.
1: So guilt is one of those, I think, universal emotions that we all feel after somebody dies. I, I remember actually the first time that I felt a lot of guilt and shame actually was when Jimmy's cancer came back because my feeling was I was the mom, I should have protected him and I blamed myself for it. And what, what saved me was connecting with other parents whose children had, their cancer had come back as well. And, and realizing that I couldn't have done anything to stop it. Um, but I think the corollary to that is when Jimmy died, I think both I and other parents tend to feel really guilty about anything and everything we've ever done that felt wrong or, you know, unkind or anything like that. I mean, I replayed every time I got impatient with him or yelled at him or ignored him or, you know, I could just make a huge list of all my my sins and my failings and but what I realized was that when I did that, that wasn't the part of Jimmy that I wanted to think about or embrace. I also realized that that wasn't what he remembered of his upbringing, that if he were alive, we, that's not what we would be focused on either. Because so many of those things, either he just wrote off to, oh, mom's cranky, yeah. or you know, he didn't even remember. They weren't as significant to him as they were to me. And so over time I learned to to let those go because then it allowed space for remembering the happier times.
0: Well, and it speaks to, you know, at the beginning of our conversation how you you know described that story of feeling impatient with Jimmy and writing his essay and being able to share that now as like a heartwarming memory of a time with him and of his stubbornness and so it just seems to speak to that transformation of how do I make room for remembering the parts of him and our relationship I want to, not by just like ignoring all those other things, but how can I roll those into a way of describing it that isn't just I messed up, I was a bad mom? Right. Exactly. Exactly. I also thought about if
1: I had known that Jimmy was going to die, what would I have done differently? And so, of course, the initial answer is, oh, I would have been perfect. I never would have lost my temper. If I would have been, you know, the most amazing mom ever. But I also would have been like a crazy person because I would have known what the outcome was, right? So I would have exhibited a whole different set of irritating, annoying <laughs> behaviors that would have driven him nuts. And so that helped too to realize that that all we can do is our best in any given moment. And, and we're human. And that what matters is the bigger things. Like what I think that if Jimmy were here and he asked, he was asked something about me as a mom, I think one of the things he would say is my mom fights for me. Like that's what he, that's the kind of thing that he remembers and, and would think about me. And that that matters a lot more than any time I got irritated with him because he didn't do his homework.
0: You mentioned that writing has been like a really big part of your process. And do you have a sense of like what it is about writing that is so helpful to you? I think it's a combination of two things. Um, When right after
1: Jimmy was diagnosed, I started out sending out email updates to friends and family. I realized that the writing both allowed me to process what was happening and, and kind of um, sort of capture and and make sense of it if you will and also it allowed the, our family to bring other people along with us because then they knew what was happening and they we also in the in those emails gave them a way to to know how to be supportive we didn't give lists like your friends did. But we, we gave words to how we were thinking about the latest diagnosis, the latest change on the scan, the latest treatment, so that people had an entry point to ask how Jimmy was or to respond to the email. And so we found that people really, put, they leaned in as a result because they, they had some language and, and an understanding of where we were that, that they could interact with and respond to.
0: So for folks who want to connect more with your writing, your website, Saltwater is the best place to go. And can you tell us a little bit about the website, like the origin story of it, and maybe what some of your hopes are for the website moving forward?
1: So after Jimmy died, my mom died the following year. And I did what so many people do, which is I went on the web, and I looked for websites that would provide support to me as I grieved. And I couldn't find anything that really resonated with me because I wanted something that wasn't specific to a single kind of loss because I'd had these two profoundly shattering losses in close proximity. And I also wanted something that was really open to people that were grieving wherever they were in the process and regardless of what kind of loss they were grieving. Because I found that for... For many people, there's a certain ranking that goes on with loss. Mm. And so, for example, child loss is worse than grandparent loss is worse than pet loss, for example. And so people wind up feeling sort of rated or marginalized sometimes, depending on what the loss is. Um, Even in my own case, my mom died at the age of 92. And so I got a certain amount of, oh, she lived a long, full life which was absolutely true. But at the same time, my son had been dead for a year and I needed my mom and she wasn't there. I, I wanted something where people would just allow grievers to grieve the way that they needed to. I couldn't find it. So I decided I wanted to create an online community and a blog. And I took two of my friends to breakfast who are incredibly creative. And I handed them a list of all the different names I had come up with. And buried in the middle of this two-page list were the words saltwater. And my friend Andy said, why do you have saltwater on this list? And I said, it's after the quote by Isaac Dennison, the cure for anything is saltwater, sweat, tears, or the sea. And she said, that's it. You call it saltwater. You divide your blog posts into those three categories. She said, your tagline should be something like, find your safe harbor. That's exactly what I did.
0: <laughs> and so moving forward with the website, what are, what are some of your hopes for how it might change or grow over time? My plan is to keep growing it organically as I have to
1: this point. I, I like sharing other people's writing. So about a third of the blog posts come from other voices who write about other losses and perspectives that I don't have. Um, I've been collaborating some with other nonprofits or other folks that do work in the grief space. COVID's had an impact on that because we aren't able, for example, to put on a workshop or to do something, you know, in person right now. And online is challenging, I think, when you're dealing with with grief and loss sometimes. It's just it's not the same space as when you're in the same room. But I've been doing some speaking Um, I've been sharing some writing in different places. My plan is just to continue to to expand Saltwater's reach. One of the things I like about it, which was really important to me, is that the website is neither a for-profit or non-profit, and there's no solicitation of any kind. So it really creates a space where folks can interact in whatever way they want to, and
0: no one will bother them. You mentioned COVID, and... You know, I think about how all the disruptions that are happening now and how they're affecting families who are in the place that you were, you know, six years ago, seven years ago with with Jimmy and, you know, his illness and treatments and and all of those things. But just wondering, like, here you are, you know, six years out from his death. How are you how are you being affected by COVID and its disruptions in your grief and in the ways that maybe you have found to carry your grief? So for me
1: personally, I don't think COVID has been as hard as it has been for many others. Um, And I think that's a combination of, of we've, our family's been very fortunate in that we have not had anyone die from COVID. Which has been huge. And we don't we've not had anyone that's been been sick and where we couldn't get to them because of COVID. And I've, I like solitude. I work for myself as a consultant and I have a home office. And so that there was no transition in a way with that. Um, and being six years out from Jimmy's death, I'm okay connecting with a dear friend over the phone or on Zoom if I'm having a hard day. Whereas I think early on, I needed to be in the same room with the person. So I, I think that's helped. I also find that because we are all grieving more than one thing right now, whether it's the, the loss of contact, the, the shift to working at home, to not being able to be together, the isolation, all of those, as well as the deaths that are happening in the illness, that grief is more talked about right now and that when people ask that that classic question of how are you they actually want an answer whereas i think before covid it was it if you gave somebody an honest answer to that you could sort of see them pull back and they <laughs> didn't necessarily want it so in that way i think it's made it, it it's it's made grief a little bit more accessible maybe and a little bit a little bit easier to talk about for folks, which I think helps. The flip side of that is I think the magnitude is staggering of what we're dealing with as a country right now. I think that layers on top of any grief that we had going into COVID. And so I find that I can get stressed or crack a bit in a way that's sometimes unexpected because I don't know that I'm carrying so much more now because of what's happening in the world. And the best example of that is when California had all these fires raging and the air quality got bad and I couldn't go for a walk with the dog. And I found myself in a really dark place and had to just sort of sit myself down and have a conversation about this is going to pass. Your house is not on fire. You can live without walking the dog for a couple of weeks because I didn't realize how that was helping me cope with what was happening.
0: Yeah, and I think it's so important that that point of not dismissing the way the collective grief overlays and intermixes with the individual grief, and how the individual can feel exacerbated by that collective of you're carrying your own grief in your family and knowing there's so many other families out there who are now also grieving. And that it's almost like this ripple effect back that can really hit some tender spots for our individual stories. Exactly. Margo, what's something you most want the world to remember about your son, Jimmy? So for
1: the people who knew and loved him, I hope they remember how funny he was, because he was a really funny kid. But more broadly, I hope that that they remember how kind he was. Because I know that's, that's something that I carry forward with me, that I what, I most often hear his voice when I realize that I'm not being kind and I think, oh, oh, Jimmy would not approve of this. And sometimes I do it anyway because I can't stop myself. But, but I do feel like I've become a kinder person since he died, that he's really taught me. He really taught me to make space for people and to see what pain might be driving someone's behavior that I find hurtful or irritating or whatever else. And to just take that extra breath. And even if I can't find empathy in that moment to at least make some space for that person instead of making a crack or an impatient comment.
0: That sounds a little like Jimmy has helped you become a type A, B, maybe not fully B, but A, B. (laughs) there you go. That's the yeah, not thought of that. That's, that's true. He'll never, he would never make me into a bee. It's not fully. So Margo, I know we mentioned your website, saltwater and I will put a link uh, in our show notes for our listeners, but any other ways that you uh, want to let listeners know to connect with you and connect with your work and, and Jimmy's story.
1: I think that the website is great. Also saltwater has social media on Instagram and Facebook that i'm active on as well and i think it's finding kind of the best way for each person to connect um sometimes it's connecting directly with me sometimes it's about me putting someone in touch with another person who's who's experienced the same loss um sometimes for folks it's it's writing um something for saltwater We also, I also do themed months. So for example, in November, I'm going to do a whole month's worth of posts on grief and food, because there's so much about whether it's cooking with someone you love who's died or making a recipe that maybe your mom made and you loved. I think there's a lot of connection and interaction between grief and food. Um, And then in December, we'll do a series on surviving the holidays without a loved one. And then in January, I do a whole series on tattoos that people get after someone's died. And so for all of those things, I I welcome and encourage folks to submit, whether it's a photo or a story about, about something to
0: share. I wasn't expecting that. I was like, January, going to be something about ritual, tradition, new beginnings, but like tattoo. I tattoos? appreciate that detour. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listeners out there, I really encourage you to check out Saltwater to connect with Margot. I learned so much about Jimmy and about his legacy from from visiting that website and reading the blog post. So I invite you to do the same. And Margot, thank you uh, for being here today, for talking with me, for for sharing with the world about Jimmy and about what he meant to you. Thank you so much.
1: It's always a joy to get to talk about him.
0: And listeners out there, thank you for tuning in, for being part of our listening community. If you're new to Grief Out Loud, you can find all of our past episodes on our website, dougy.org forward slash grief If you want to connect with me, let me know what the show means to you. Or if you have a topic you're wanting to hear more about, you can email me at griefoutloud at Thanks so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time.